Hey friends, it's good to see you this morning. We have some stuff that we get to talk about together. Uh, but I'm going to start this morning with a prayer. And here's why. Well, probably because we're in church and you can't pray too much. However, anytime, I've told you this before, anytime uh, I get ready to prep to preach or the staff spends a lot of time like soaking in a bit of scripture, uh, inevitably it sort of cuts channels for all kind of things to sort of get inside me or our staff or our church. Partly because we are meant to wrestle with the things that we talk about. And so if we're going to sit up here and talk about loneliness, then it's going to invite us into the places in our own life where we are quite lonely. This morning we're going to talk about death and new life. What that means is that your staff and pastors and leaders have been with these ideas. So uh, you might know me as like a fairly buoyant personality. I do not come to you this morning feeling quite as buoyant, but like maybe I've been in the Shadowlands shadow boxing with and for you. So uh, I'd like to pray this morning as we begin. And I would invite you, if you would pray with and for me as we get ready to talk and listen together. So let's pray. God, this morning, we step into your presence and into this world with fear and trembling, with a heavy sense of the sacred and also a burden for the world. God, we are always looking for you and for signs of your work. The trick is, God, you lead us into places where you are most needed. And so prepare us right now as we take the next step towards you, toward Christ, and toward the world. Give us all the strength for this journey and all of the bindings that we will need to stay together for the road ahead. This is nothing less than a death march. And it is everything, God. So give us all the promises. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning we're going to talk about death, but first I want to tell you a little bit about what it means to talk about death in a world that does not want to talk about death. And when I use death today, we're going to say death with a capital D. Not death specifically as like a medical definition of death. So when we sat around together and we talked on Thursday in our noon Bible study, uh, we asked the question, what is death? And the answers we kind of batted around for a little bit, we're trying to outline it based on that sort of like, you know, heartbeat rhythm you see on the monitor and when it goes flat. We, we kept sitting with it as a medical reality, but, but this morning we're going to talk about it in a different realm. And it's not going to be any more fun to talk about, but it's going to be quite necessary. But first, how are we not allowed to talk about death? This is an article that I read a little bit ago. It says, Google executive plans to live forever. And this is not from The Onion. This is a real article. Talked about this before. Turns out, having a lot, a lot of money does not make you any less afraid 
of dying. It just gives you this illusion that you might be able to beat the thing. So there are lots of folks who have lots of money who are trying to figure out how to solve the problem of our own mortality. This fits in perfect with what we're going to call the ethic of avoidance, which is often the way that we talk about about dying. Or rather, don't talk about it. In fact, this is... Have you heard this language before? Somebody's, somebody's died. I have to practice myself. Like with, we've got young kids and this is something that's all around us. But this is often the language that we'll use. It kind of softens the blow. You've said this before or you've had this said to you before. She just passed. Passed where? Passed does not sound like dying to me. Past sounds like something quite benign. You can feel, right now, in fact, as I'm seeing you, I can feel some of you already dodging, wondering, I should have, like, called in sick today. Or maybe blamed it on our local sports team and all of the nights we've stayed up watching them. It would have been a great excuse to not be here today. Can we please not talk about this? Death's greatest deception. So what C.S. Lewis talks about when C.S. Lewis talks about the devil, if you've read Screwtape Letters before, that the devil's greatest trick is convincing us that the devil does not exist. In the scriptures, when we talk about the accuser or the devil or Satan or the demonic forces in the world are evil, we could just as easily substitute the language of death with the capital D and we're kind of talking about the same thing. So when we talk about the devil's greatest trick is sort of convincing us that it doesn't matter not to think about it, this is also death's greatest trick. It's why we use language like she passed instead of so-and-so died. There are lots of reasons why we don't talk about death as much as we used to. This is a new phenomenon because just like 100 years ago or so, most everyone in here would have at some point like dug a grave. Has anyone in here dug a grave before? That's a small number compared to the number of people who have died. Most of everyone at some point in time would have, even kids, would have at some point dug a grave. You would have been deeply acquainted with death. There's a couple of things I want to share about why death has just disappeared from our view. One is our eating. We'll start there. Before, when we ate, we knew that our own substance, that our own eating, had something to do with somebody else's dying. Often, has anyone cleaned a deer before? Field dressed a deer? Yeah, you have, Rachel. You, and then, how did you also eat the deer? How soon after you cleaned it? That night. That's crazy. Like, I don't, last, what did I eat yesterday? I think I had some pork yesterday. I know that pork did not die yesterday. Right? But there was a shorter distance between the two. It would be like your animal that lived on your farm that you had to eat. And you knew that the process of getting that food to the table had something to do with dying. Now, we don't think about that at all. We have no sense that death has anything to do with our eating. Or, my, grand, my great aunt, Aunt Liam, she's amazing. 
She was born in a house in Osaka, Mississippi. She was married in the house in Osaka, Mississippi. And she died in the house in Osaka, Mississippi. Now, she lived her life all over the place, but that was home. And you were born, and all of your life events and even your dying happened at home. We cared for the body, right in the same room where I slept, same bed. And as a small child, Judah, you're 11. As an 11-year-old, that was a weird thing. Uh, But... Death was part of just the rhythms of life. We would have all known that this walked with us. But death has moved out of the home now into hospitals far, far away from home rhythms. Often like cared for by folks who are professionally trained and thank God for those folks, but not often by family as much anymore. Uh, I happen to be able to sit with folks a lot in their dying, but that just happens to be my job, and maybe it's not all of our experience. The other thing that has made death disappear is where the bodies end up. Back in the day, not too long ago, graves were just at home. Our dog's grave is at home where we used to live. Or it would have been right outside this wall here. Each church would have had a cemetery. And the language of death and new life would make sense because death was so close. You would bring the body, place it here at the altar. You would say all of the language of the gospel that makes death visceral and the promise of new life possible. And then you would walk the body just a few feet and put it in the ground. And it would be there as a reminder of the promises of God. But what happens when we have sanitized death to the point that we cannot see it? We cannot feel it. And so then either we ignore it or we fetishize it. It is Halloween season, and I know some of you watch horror. Which, who in here watches horror movies? I just want to judge you for a second. You people are crazy. But there's a lot of death in these movies, right? There's a lot of blood. But it is still a bit of a distant. It's either we don't want to think about it or all we can do is obsess about it. Neither of those feel very life-giving. So, part of what we need to do is be able to state the crisis or the problem with greater precision, with language that is ours. This picture on the front of your, the front of your, uh, your bulletin is of the, the preachers. Do you know these preachers who handle serpents? Have you seen the documentaries and the reality shows about them? Have you ever been, has anyone ever been to one of these churches? No, nobody raised their hand for that one. It'd be crazy. It's easy to, to make fun of the serpent handling, poison drinking preachers from, usually from the deep south, right, Leslie? Alabama's got a few primitive Baptist churches where there's still folks who handle serpents. Uh, I actually have an affinity for these brothers and sisters in these churches. There's some crazy involved, but There is a certain kind of courageous precision about the way that they think about worship. Because here's what they say. They'll bring a box in. And I thought about bringing a box just to see if some of you assumed I had a snake in it. But then I realized I'm really afraid of snakes. And then one of you would like prank me and put a snake in it so there's no box. Uh, They would take a box and they would put it, this wooden box, like right in the middle of the altar. And the pastor would, would, before opening it, would look at it and would say... There's death in this box. And it was true. A lot of people had died from this practice. Turns out, there's death all over the place. 
then they would pick up death and they would say it has no power over our lives. This is like intense symbolism here, folks. Now we can mock it and say like, why would you do something so stupid? But the Reverend Will Campbell in talking about snake handling preachers says, uh, you can condemn our primitive brothers and sisters for this practice and yet we pick up daily more dangerous serpents of our culture than they ever do and we handle them like they are pets. So, it is good to speak with precision. There is death in this world. There is death in our bodies, in our families, in our lives, in our culture. It would be foolish to ignore it. So let's talk about death. But let's speak more precisely. Let's speak with the scripture about death. It's not just death, right? It's the fear of death. And now we're getting closer. But it's not just the fear of death. It is what happens when we become afraid. It's the language of bondage or of slavery. And that is our condition. The writer of Hebrews talks about this as the dominant reality that Jesus comes to break. So here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to talk about two things at once. And we're going to talk about both of them with boldness and without fear. One is the moral reality of death in our lives. And then two is the greater truth of Jesus present in the midst of death in our lives. And so when you start to feel like you're sinking, when I was sinking down, sinking down, sinking down, you know that song? When I was sinking down, sinking down into death, know that, know that Christ has been in the place of death and found a way out. So you ready? Let's get going. Death as a moral reality. But first I have to have a moment of confession with you. I want to talk a little bit about the specific shape of my own Fear. This will get to what I mean by death as a moral reality, not just death as a medical reality. If we spend our lives scanning the horizon, looking for threats, and that's like a normal thing to do. We've evolved to scan the horizon, looking for threats. We're like those meerkats. You know the meerkats? In Meerkat Kingdom, always kind of looking around, like super anxious all the time. That's how it feels sometimes. For me, as a pastor, it is tempting to let fear of death become a dominant reality in my life. And it's not usually like my own mortality. I'm still young enough to pretend that I'm not going to die, right? That'll go away at some point, won't it? I'll begin to realize, no, there is some... But for me, the shape of that fear is for us. What does it mean to help lead an institution, a system, a culture, a community of faith in trust? And if I'm always scanning the horizon for signs of death, I might find myself in bondage to that fear. And in that bondage, we might make decisions that pretend that death is not part of our story. So, here's 
how that fear works itself out for me. I'll do things like I'll check our, like I'll check our giving numbers, right? And if the numbers don't go up and to the right, then that's not a good sign. Or we'll count the pews and we'll be like, I don't see A, B, or C today, those folks. So, and then that becomes a sign. I'm reading the signs all of the time. And then I become deeply afraid. And then this entire project becomes mine and not God's. And the thing floats or sinks based on my will and power and not God's. Death doesn't just look like a medical reality. Death is a moral reality. And we all live with the fear of it. Fear that our businesses won't succeed, or our marriages won't make it, or our kids won't be successful. Fear that we're going to be without a home, or we're not going to know where our next meal is going to come from. Fear that our depression and our isolation is just never going to lift. I know that this feels familiar to some of you. This is death as a moral reality. I read a book this week called The Slavery to Death by Richard Beck. He talks about what we do with this fear, this neurotic anxiety. It's just kind of always a background hum in our lives. He says, in contemporary American culture, our slavery to the fear of death produces superficial consumerism. This is going to hurt, guys, but just stay with me. Produces superficial consumerism, a fetish for managing appearances. And everybody said Snapchat. Sidebar. Do y'all know what Snapchat is? Kind of. It's like a social media app, but there's this cool filter on it. And when you take a picture of it, uh, I, if I took a picture of myself and applied the filter, I would look like town. That's right. Like from from weathered to, to lovely. <laughs> you know it's true, man. Here's the problem, right? It is a, it's sort of a way to pretend uh, that we're perfect in these filters. But what we've seen is that people are now going to plastic surgeons to, to get procedures to look more like their Snapchat filters. This is the avoidance of death in a technology world made manifest in a physical world. That's crazy, guys. That is the avoidance of death. Triumphalist religion. And the eclipse of personal and societal empathy. And then he says this, these are the works of the devil in our lives, works produced by our slavery to the fear of death. Oh, I do not want the devil to be real. I do not want this to be the dominant reality. This is not fun. It would be better to pretend. And then just at the moment of crisis, we could all like close our eyes and just kind of bear it. And then we'll pretend again. But God actually wants us to live from the truest parts of ourselves, To show up in vulnerability, in our own mortality. To make our dying present to God's living. So that we might be made whole. And what that means is we have got to figure out a way to let go of the artifice. Often we think 
and I've talked about this, that sin is that which isolates us from one another. And even if you begin to think a lot like our first story in the book of Genesis, it's a story of how sin creates the conditions for death to enter the story. You even hear this in the book of Romans, for the wages of sin is what? That feels like an easy fill in the blank. That felt like cheating. But yeah, that somehow sin leads to isolation, and isolation might be another way that we just talk about dying. There is another way to understand those first stories in the book of Genesis. This is the Western Christian version. At some point, Western and Eastern Christianity kind of took a, took a split in the road from each other, and each of them carried off certain amounts of wisdom that the other group needed. And here's what Eastern Christianity held on to from those early origin stories, that actually it's our isolation and the death that enters into the story that creates our sinfulness. And it can be both. It is, in fact, both. So those origin stories in Genesis become the story about how sin and death enter into the great human drama. But now we live in a world that we would say is suffused with death, like permeated by it, which means we come into this story with a kind of crack right in the middle of things. And it causes us to do crazy things. Causes us to to sin, to hurt one another. Surely you know exactly where I'm going next. This has been a, a week followed by Like so many other weeks like this, two big events happened in our culture. One, at least at the national level, were all of these packages that were shipped around containing devices of death, right? These little bitty bombs. And the other was this tragic story about the synagogue in Pittsburgh where there was an attack, where death walked in the door carrying weapons, right? Now, both of those stories share in common individuals who were deeply isolated from community, from meaning, from hope. And you can see it's not hard to draw a straight line between that isolation and then what we could only call with precision sin. But I don't want to talk about this anymore. (laughs) Can we just talk about the antidote? Can we talk about what it is we are supposed to do? How we are supposed to live in a world like this? Is anybody tired? Raise your hand if you're tired. If you're just tired of the news and the constant, constant pressure to either pretend that death does not reign Or collaborate with its reign. I'm exhausted. Your staff, your pastors are exhausted. I'm just going to be really honest with you. We pray for you all the time. On Tuesdays when we gather, we see your faces when we sit around the table. We pray for this community. We pray for this city. 
And then in a way that feels deep to our own calling as ministers of the gospel. We say with precision what the world is actually like. And we summon all the truth we think we have seen. All the available light. We gather it together as your pastors. And we try to place our hope in that space. And a lot of times we would rather just avoid the thing and pretend. But there is this call that we have to go do battle in the shadowlands with and for you. And so when I say that I am tired, it's that same kind of tired I imagine that Jesus felt after those 40 days in the wild places. When the devil actually shows up. And pulls Jesus' affections. And says we could do great things together. And I. Leslie you would say the same. Lindsay you would say the same. Bill. Zach. Board you would say the same. I'm not sure I'm up for this task by myself. It starts to feel like too much. And what I would rather do is assume that what we just, can we polish the edges of this thing? Just make each of you a little bit better? Just a little bit better. I don't want you to die. I don't want it to be this hard. But then I remember that at the center of this community, the physical, at the moral and spiritual center of this community, which man might be right here with you, that would be close to the center, is not me, is not the staff, is not all of our good intentions. It is the crucified and risen Christ. And so even when I get tired, I remember that it is not out of my strength that this battle is going to get won. And it is not in your strength either. Because this crisis of death is going to entail a surrender. We're going to lose. We're going to lose before we win. We're going to die before we are raised. And I feel like each week I'm breaking it to you. That that's the story. That Jesus was born, lived and taught, was persecuted and killed. And the third day rose again. Can we skip the middle part? We just skip it. Turns out that the antidote is love. And love... And the pattern of God is sacrifice and even suffering. Here's how the writers say it in 1 John. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning. That you should love one another. We know, we know that we are mid-stride between death and life. Because we love one another. Whoever does not love abides in death. 
This is what it means to live underneath the moral reality of death in the world. That it becomes harder and harder to love one another. To love our near and our far enemies. To the ones who annoy us and the ones who want to kill us. And that is a clue that death has a hold. And it's not just fear of death. It is your slavery and bondage to the fear of death. A little further on it says, Beloved. Let us love one another, because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God, and whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. Again, beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. And then again, God is love. This is redundant, do we not get it? God is love, and those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment because as he is, so we are in the world. What does it mean to be in the world but not of the world? It means to not be ruled by the slavery of the fear of death. To know that it's present and it to have nothing to do with our lives. Now here is your antidote. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. There is no fear in love, because perfect love casts out fear. A little bit later in this week, I have this practice. Each week I try to maintain, uh, and I let it go for a couple of weeks because I'd gotten busy. And I was feeling the weight of this sermon. I was feeling the weight of this scripture and trying to believe it. And so I sat down at my computer and I wrote a thank you letter to all of the folks who make Sunday morning possible. I tried to lean heavily into love and see if that did something to the fear, and it did. Perfect love casts out fear. There are two realities always present for those who are following Jesus. It is that death reigns and that we are free from its power. At the same time, death reigns and we are free from its power. Do you remember the last speech, the last sermon that King gave? Do you remember some of that? He's saying this. I might not make it, but I'm not fearing any man. Knowing that death is close and knowing it has nothing to do With the moral trajectory of his life found in Christ. Death reigns and we are free from its power. At the same time. I want to tell you a story that illustrates this for me. Uh, comes from a, a preacher named Fred Craddock. So Fred Craddock's one of my favorite preachers. Uh, very, very small uh, preacher from, I believe, Tennessee, deep south, and he sort of changed the field of preaching. But he told this story at, at um, during Lent, during Passion Week at a service. I'll share it with you. He said uh, he had always assumed that death was an enemy. And he and his brother, when they were younger, were playing catch out in the, out in the street. And there had been a death 
uh, that had happened like just across the street. And so they had taped off. You know how sometimes they'll tape these sort of things off. And it was this clear thing. They were throwing the ball. He said, my brother and I were throwing the ball. And then he threw the ball over the tape. And I said, you go get the ball. And he said, no, you go get the ball. He said, no, you go get the ball. And he said, we didn't get the ball. The death had moved in to the neighborhood and it was scary. So a little bit later, as he's a preacher and a pastor, there's a woman in the church who's dying. And everybody at the church is praying for her. And so like pastors do, he went to her home and he goes and he prays with some of the family there. And he says, we were up praying and praying and holding the door. We knew that death was close. And so together they all had barricaded the door to not let it in. And he says that the woman summons just a little bit of breath, a little bit of voice and says, let him in. He says, we're not going to let him in. We've been holding the door all night, keeping watch. We can't let death in. And she says, let him in. And so we let him in. He said, I've never seen such a sad sight as death on that day. Robbed of all power and all sting. Come to do a job with no pleasure. Because it turns out that this woman had already died. And it had been brought back to life. And her baptism. And the moral shape of her story. She had stepped out onto the edge, to the abyss, curled her toes over the cliff, and smelled and leaned into her own dying. And then God had brought her back to life. So death had no power in that room. Let him in. What does it mean to not be afraid? What would be possible if we were not afraid? Who could we love if we were not afraid? She had already died. She was free. In the Book of Common Prayer, which is the liturgy book for a lot of congregations and churches, there's a liturgy of baptism. Now, when we baptize, it's in this space right behind us here. And baptism is this fascinating practice. We have two sacraments in our congregation, really, that we hold to. One is baptism, and the other is communion or the Lord's Supper. But baptism is this, like, very, very visceral image Is there water in here? No. We ask people to come into this water. And in the Book of Common Prayer, there is this language that is used that names death's hold on our life, our own slavery and bondage to it. And you ask the person who's getting ready to be baptized, do you renounce the devil in all of the devil's ways? And then... The person's answer is, I renounce them. Over and over again, there is this pushing out, this exorcism that happens in baptism. 
This taking off of an old self and putting on a new self. Then there's this other refrain that happens. It says, do you trust in the love of Christ? And the person says, I do. But it's good to remind one another that baptism is a death ritual. That's why when I baptized Judah a year ago, I cried. It is a reminder of what is at stake. We're in a Baptist church. A lot of us grew up in the Baptist tradition. It's a reminder as well that baptism is a fraught act. Early, our uh, mothers and fathers of the Baptist faith, when they were baptized, it was a political act because they were baptized out of one system and into another system. And so when they got caught, that story about dying to self and being raised to new life, the authorities, the powers, the demonic that had always embeds itself inside the moral fabric of the world said, fine, you want to die? We can make that happen. So they would tie, you know, rocks to them and they would throw them back into the river and they would baptize them again. There is so much at stake here. Death is present at the table. We eat the story of Christ dying with the promise of Christ raising. And we have done this as Christians because we are those who are not afraid of death. We are not afraid of any man. We are not afraid of anything, any power or principality. And when we do become afraid, we look to our sides. We look in front or behind us and we notice that we are not alone. And that there are others who are with us. Barbara, right? I renounce all the works of the devil. I renounce the bondage, the slavery, the fear of death. In a few months, we're going to come to Ash Wednesday and we're going to put the mark of the cross on our heads. We're coming to the end, friends. We're going to mark ourselves with the central image of our story, which is Christ crucified and raised. When Jesus showed up and loved the world like God loves the world, the world returned the favor and gave Jesus its worst. And the worst at the time was death on a cross. And the fear of a crucifixion death was not the dying. It was the humiliation. It was the shame, which is what Christ scorns. And frees us from. And so Christians, we take up this sign of the cross. And we place it on our bodies. We wear it on a necklace. We tattoo it on our arms. We put it all over the sanctuary. We set it right beside you, ma'am. Right in the center of things again. The image of death that the world has given us. Turned into the promise of new life. Can you feel what Jesus has done to our central predicament? Has gone where we cannot go and done what we cannot do. So, friends, we are invited. 
always invited to step to the edge and curl our toes over and smell it and feel it and to let go. To no longer let our lives be controlled by the fear of death. You will become dangerous people if you are no longer afraid. You will become unstoppable people if you are no longer afraid. You will confuse and confound the world and the powers of this world if you are no longer afraid. God can do a lot with those who are no longer afraid. But sometimes all that feels too big. It feels like I'm inviting each of you to actually die. To go find a way to get yourself martyred. So let's start with something smaller. Something that we can hold on to today. That you can put in your pocket and take with you. There is a woman, one of the three doctors of the church, named Teresa of LaSalle. She talks about something called the little way. And this is, all, this is what you can take with you today. This idea of doing small things with great love. Teresa, she died quite young and quite obscurely, living in a monastery with the sisters, praying, taking communion, singing hymns, reading scripture, sort of fades out of history. But she wrote, she wrote a story, her story and God's story, and it caught fire. In it, she talks about something called the little way. And often, when we see the bigness of the thing, we think, how do we fix this? What do we do with all of those people who died? What do we do with all those people who are about to be without housing? What do we, it's too, it's so big. It's so big. But what if there was something small that today we could step into? She gives this example. She says, you know that person you go around at church? You know that person that you skip, you'd like, you see them and you think, I'm gonna, in this church it's easy to do because there's a thousand ways to get everywhere. So that person you bypass because it's just easier than having to have that conversation. She says, that is a kind of persecution. What would it mean to just step and meet that person? To become available to, it's that kind of thing. I'm not inviting you to do the hardest thing, just the next thing with love. There was a guy I ran into last week in my reading named Milo Treat. He was a father of this church in the 20s. He actually gave like a ton of the money for this building, for this land. He was the one that they called the Prince of First Baptist. And he had died right before the dedication. And so of course they wrote this beautiful beautiful eulogy for him. But as I read about him, I realized that this is somebody who had been practicing the little way. There's this pull quote that he says. He says, I feel unworthy to be part of this community of faith because the, the poor in our midst are so much more generous than I am. That's 100 years ago, and that's what I remember and that's what I'm handing to you today. Not all the big things he did, but the humble, small acts of generosity and kindness that clearly affected them and has still affecting us. 
What is the next thing that we're going to do? Andre Trachma says that we're supposed to make small moves against destructiveness. So that's your invitation today. To find a way to make one small move against destructiveness. I'm going to make it really concrete for you. There are folks who are suffering deeply from what has happened, particularly in Pittsburgh. Faith communities, Jewish brothers and sisters who are afraid. I'm going to ask, don't post on Facebook. Don't scream into the abyss. Just pick up the phone and call someone you know today. Who was at synagogue this week? Or who grew up Jewish? And say that you're sorry and that you love them and that you carry this pain with them. It's just a little thing. It's just a little step. Friends, we have nothing to fear. God has already defeated the last enemy. And so we live as those who are free to love with abandon, to give ourselves away, to become small and to become less for the sake of the world. This is your invitation. I know it is not easy because I've been trying to walk this path, but I invite you with me because we might just find the resurrected Christ. Would you pray with me? God, is this what you have been trying to tell us? That your love undoes the curse? That your love is stronger even than the grave? Is this what you've been whispering and screaming in the prophets and on the mountain and in the person of Jesus? God, everything tells us that we have so much to fear. And we have become addicted to it. So break chains, open the door, free the captives so that we might love the world as you love it, to love our brothers and sisters as you love them, to love ourselves as you love us. We are tired, but you are our strength. 
we are weary, but you are our rest. We are beaten down, but not destroyed. We love you, God, and know that you love us. In the strong name of Jesus. Amen.